Hey everybody, it's Jay-Z here welcoming you to season two of the Sauropod, where we are podcasting that 21st century that we are all in the midst of right now. Uh, it's a sort of international edition, at least for this season anyway, as uh, I have moved to Iceland. Uh, it's one of the many changes that has uh, occurred with the, with the podcasting crew over here. So, new Icelandic friends, uh, international friends of the show, welcome. Make yourselves at home, please. Come on in, have some coffees and teas and licorices and things like that. Whatever, whatever it is you do, I will find out. I'm here to study your your language and the culture of your peoples, and uh, I thank you for allowing me to do that. And then, likewise, I will serve as an ambassador for those United States of America, which I think has a lot to answer for, but I will I will do my best to try to explain it should should it come up, and it will probably come up. Let's be honest. Meanwhile, the crew back home is uh, holding down the fort. Finn, Jazz, uh, Tom, Sarah, Bobby, Tom Green, uh, James, the whole the whole crew, they're back there doing well, uh, going through a, a series of paradigm shifting life events. And that's just how it rolls sometimes, uh, you know, phases and stages, circles and cycles. You know what I mean? What the hell are you going to do? Anyway, let me tell you some more about that Frankenstein, because what we have here for the Halloween party 2018 edition, it's the 200th anniversary of the publishing of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Frankenstein is my favorite personal monster, uh, so... Basically, last year, I, I wrote the... Uh, it's a scholarly work, is what I would say. And I think it's the most comprehensive text on Frankenstein's of the 1930s and 1940s. So, what I've done for you... And you can find that on, on your Amazon Kindle website. You just look for it. Frankenstein Operator's Manual. If you want to, that'd be great. I think it's like a dollar or something like that. Uh, I know my dad bought a copy. He seemed very pleased with it. So, thanks, Dad. Uh, meanwhile, if if you uh, you know I don't know if there's a the hustle and bustle of the modern age doesn't allow for a lot of uh, comprehensive monster based essay reading. So what I've done for you here is just read it out loud. So please enjoy and uh, and meanwhile I think next week we're going to bring you the new show Reykjavik tonight with uh, my buddy Dettafos Bergman Bergman. Uh, who's a great guy we will be meeting and we will be exchanging cultural influences and whatnot and it's going to be a great uh, international affair so i hope you join us for that and uh until then i don't know let's uh let's light this fucking candle all right season two let's do it give me give me that tone that body is not dead it has never lived. I created it. I made it with my own hands from the bodies I took from graves, from the gallows, anywhere. It wasn't my father's fault that the being he created became a senseless, murderous monster. He was right. It's alive! It's alive! It was the unforeseen blunder of a stupid assistant who gave his creation the brain of a killer instead of a normal one. I love death. suffer for that mistake. Perhaps death is sacred. Alone. Bad. And I've profaned it. Friend. Wood. The air itself is filled with monsters. Fire. No good. This isn't science. To a new world of gods and monsters. It's more like black magic. We belong dead. Ah! 
this is place of the dead. We're all dead here. His name has become synonymous with horror monsters. Your father made him, but his mother was lightning. Why, nine out of ten people call that the shape and creature of my father's experiments. Frankenstein. 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 Frankenstein Operator's Manual. An essay by Justin Zeppa. Part 1. Monster Mechanic. Welcome to my monster garage. Shopping around, are we? I love it. I love to see a family outing like this. And look at this guy here. He looks like he's just about monster age, huh? Are we maybe hoping mom and dad will be getting us our first monster when we turn 16? <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to say anything. I know how it is. He's a sharp one, isn't he, mom? Mom? Never mind. Oh, you've heard some things about Frankensteins, have you? Been browsing online, huh? No, that's great. You want to be an informed consumer. Any questions I can maybe tackle for you? As a certified monster mechanic, I firmly believe in passing what I know on to the next generation of enthusiasts. I sense some skepticism in your tone. What kind of things have you been reading about? Ah, I see. The novel. Okay, forgive me, but I'm going to stop you there. Do me a favor and take a look outside at the road you were just driving on. You don't see a lot of Ford quadricycles tooling around out there, do you? Of course not, and that's because these complex, paradigm-shifting things evolve. Think of that grainy film footage of the bouncing sky car with the whirling cocktail umbrella propeller. Ludicrous, right? And yet here we are, over 100 years in the future, and hover conversions are completely standard issue. See, these are not machines so much as they are events. But you've got to start somewhere, and that was very much the case with Frankensteins. So here's the deal with your 1818 Mary Shelley Frankenstein. It's a curiosity that should be admired for what it was and what it inspired, but it's certainly not practical for the postmodern age, even in a fun, retro kind of way. Have you ever seen one? Sure, sure. School, right? British literature? Yeah. That's where it's used as a textbook, just as it should be. A textbook for boring. I reread it a few years ago, having found a reissue that featured some quality woodcut illustrations. It's a handsome edition, no doubt, but it speaks volumes that the best part of my reread ended up being the pictures. I liked the physical book more than its contents. And this is not to say that it's not an important part of the canon. The idea is as sound as ever and continues to inspire different interpretations. <laughs> Jurassic Park! <laughs> and it's a keystone example of romantic writing. Boy, is it ever romantic. If it feels like homework, that's because it is homework. You like extended passages about scenery and not a lot of monster talk? Well, then you'll definitely not hate the 1818 model. If Mary Shelley had only replaced 90% of her glacier descriptions with ghoulish murders, this would have been a real barn burner. Or a real windmill burner, if you'd rather. However, she did not, and so, proto-sci-fi and gothic novel street cred aside, we're all free to tip our caps and immediately move along. This kind of book cannot be expected to wind the clock of a 21st century audience, so let's just skip it. If you really want to make the investment and jump into the market, you should... Huh? Oh yes, there's definitely a market for Frankensteins, and it is insatiable. But you want to stick with your Universal Pictures Frankensteins of the 1930s and 40s, as these are the strongest, most desirable models. The Hammer film production makes are great in their own ways, but there is no replacing the flat-top, neck-bolt look of a vintage Universal. And they are an investment. I cannot stress this enough. The market goes through cycles, and right now it's a little soft, meaning it's the right time to buy. And you needn't worry about Frankenstein's coming back. Frankenstein's always come back. I mean, if the sequels aren't a tip-off, consider that the original novel model Frankenstein is 200 years old. There's no getting rid of it, no matter how hard the mob tries. Say, why don't you all grab a cup of coffee from the machine over there, and I'll give you a brief primer before you get out to those monster swaps. 
No, no charge, folks. What kind of monster mechanic would I be if I let you spend your, I assume, hard-earned money on some clunker? You'd be unhappy, that piece of junk would end up back in circulation, my business would fail, and my reputation would suffer. Oh, are you not familiar with my reputation? Take my word for it. My reputation is very well reputed. Should you need qualifications and certifications, look no further than my almost 30 years of being in the Frankenstein racket. Yes, when I was a boy, I'd wander the monster scrapyard of the local library. There I would pore over the sacred texts of Crestwood House's 1985-issued picture book adaptations of the classic Universal monster films. My mentor was the bespectacled master of vintage cinema, Bob Dorian, whose woolen suits and silver hair oozed authority across the landscape of the early 80s and late 90s basic cable. It was Dorian's bumpers before and after AMC's featured creature picture that loaded up my impressionable gray matter with only the most trivial of trivia. Indeed, I can still recall his analysis of Jack Pierce's post-immolation makeup continuity like it was yesterday. Listen, I understand your apprehension with undertaking such a pastime, believe me. Let's face it, in 1931, we as a species were still not that good at making movies. The medium itself is only around 30 years old at this point, and the talkie feature is still box-fresh at around 5 years, so, you know, they still needed some practice. This is an era where you'll find a lot of gangster pictures and some of your shittier pre-Bugs Bunny Looney Tunes. Frankenstein's from this earlier age simply feel heavier. It's as though the director and his camera had just indulged in a turkey dinner and were having trouble getting up off the couch. With every movement of the camera, you can almost hear the crew groaning from the strain of it all. Likewise, with audio recording still in its nascent stages, film scores blare through your speakers with a piercing mid-ranginess unencumbered by the spatial organization found in the stereo spectrum and multi-track mixing. This means that no matter how menacing the timpani pulse, how angular the threatening brass line, you know the one, it goes, blah, 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 blah. It's all doomed to sound like a pile of hot mono garbage being manually cranked out of one of those old-timey phonograph horns. Editing seems equally laborious, as though cuts were made by pure memory of footage shot. We clunk along from one angle to another, each one seemingly spooled onto its own projector to be swapped out against that of another projector situated next to it. You can almost hear director James Whale muttering to editor Clarence Colster, Did we run out of stock here? The scene isn't really over. Well, just fade to black, I guess. We've got to keep this moving. And move they do, for while the sludgy feel of film mechanics is still working itself out, the stories being told move at a brisk pace, rarely approaching the 90-minute mark. Surely we can take the time to appreciate them for what they are. You won't see a lot of gearheads sticking with their Model A in a world filled to the brim with seat warmers, cup holders, and satellite radio. Cups weren't even the same size back then. But you will find them admiring the most well-preserved and detailed editions still in circulation. As such, we need to be clear about the pros and cons of investing in a Frankenstein and what to look for out on the market. The 5-Point Frankenstein Service Inspection You're going to want to run a 5-Point Service Inspection on any Frankenstein you're thinking of acquiring. It's a common-sense system I've developed over my many years in the business. I'd recommend it to anyone, but especially someone new to the trade. These are the hot spots you can look for on-site when you're kicking the tires, as they say. The 5 pertinent questions you should be asking yourself are as follows. How mad is your scientist? While the passage of years has made mad science as commonplace as the concept of telephony or the notion of baking altitude, it's interesting to acknowledge that there once was a time in which all science was considered to be rather mad. Mind you, the era we're speaking of here, the turn of the 20th century Frankenstein heyday, is not that time, and therefore any monster-building doctor can be certified, quote-unquote, completely mad. But for a while, it was pretty well accepted that if you spent your days zoning out and puttering over microscope slides for hours on end, or even knew what a microscope was, then you must have had a screw loose. 
As we shall see in the analysis that follows, the entire spectrum of madness can be found in the history of Frankensteins, from the morbidly curious to the stark raving Boncos. What kind of brain? Sometimes the monster-to-brain relationship is a shell game. The second you look away from your Frankenstein, someone might plop some new gray matter into that big green cranium. Whose brain is this? Tough to say, but the track record as we know it shows a rogues gallery of leaky think tanks cycled from one vaguely European flesh pod to another. A lot of the older model Frankensteins you'll find on the market will be either missing serial numbers or featuring heavy wear and tear, so count on doing some detective work as you decipher what form of psychotic cerebrum you're going to be living with. What are the lab conditions? Mad science, not unlike regular science, requires plenty of room in which to be done. Mad science, very much unlike regular science, also requires plenty of privacy, lest the local medical oversight committee, constabulary, or villagers stumble upon the unholy results of your toils. Thus, we commonly see remote, abandoned, or repurposed locations serving as home base for some of the most innovative of mad scientists. Since pre-war Europeans had nothing but time and rocks in their hands, most of these spaces will be large and made of stone. This suits the amount of voltage flowing through the area at any given moment, and makes any required chain fasting an easy yet secure experience. Where are your notes? A classic trope we shall see worked again and again, the mad sciencing notebooks are typically just as secreted as the laboratories themselves, but listen aspiring mad scientists, stitching bodies together and then filling them with life-giving life is a complicated process. These are not IKEA instructions, and for as intuitive as it all might seem, you I have a body. This should be a breeze. There are many, many steps between taking the parts out of the box, here a coffin, and the final murderous product. You need to take notes. There is no purpose for these experiments if you're going to have to relearn the processes every time you want to cook up a fresh race of super people. Mind you, these notes are controversial, what some might consider too hot for TV, like the backroom goings-on of the commodity market or the Area 51 files. You need to find a place to keep them safe. Then, at some point, off-screen, share this hiding space with your son, daughter, assistant, granddaughter, etc. At the very least, you want the existence of the notes to be known, even if the hiding place remains classified. You might want to consider having your probably deformed lab assistant write up some copies during some of that elusive monster-building downtime. The above-mentioned labs tend to blow up or burn to the ground quite regularly, and as there is no cloud to speak of, you'll need that information passed on somehow. Try making each version with a different cover to toy with the obsessives who love continuity. How angry is the mob? It's always important to know what level your local mob is at. A great workaround solution to this is to send a member of your staff into town for some all-purpose reconnoitering. The townsfolk are the oil, and your stooge is the dipstick. It's always good to check the level, color, and viscosity of your potential mob. Oh, and make no mistake, they are always teetering on the brink of moving from mob to angry mob. Who's around? Who stirs the most waters? Who has lost loved ones at the hand of the very same golem you are currently trying to shoot life back into? Feeling shorthanded and overwhelmed by the number of things piling up on your to-do list? Maybe kill two birds with one stone and have your assistant dip into the local pub on his way back from picking up the cadaver hands. Be sure to have them leave the handbasket outside, and then do some light probing over a draft of microbrew. This is an imitation of what society would call normal behavior, and should not raise too many suspicions. Through this line of inquiry, it should be easily determined who will be a problem and who will simply be influenced by those who have a problem. And one more thing, before we run down the various models you'll be wanting to keep an eye out for, don't be precious about the name. We've all been there, mixing at a cocktail party, discussing Frankensteins. And as sure as the sun sets in the West, it's only a matter of time before some haughty know-it-all clears his throat and informs the discussion, <clears throat> excuse me, Frankenstein was the name of the doctor, not the monster. 
First of all, you need to never invite this person to another cocktail party. They are a total buzzkill, and you want to be keeping the company of stone-cold chillers. Why are you hanging out with this snob? Second of all, Dr. Frankenstein put this monster together with his own two hands and a lot of love and a lot of manic delusion. But he built that beautiful murderous brute, and that brute was brought to life and ushered into this world at his whim. If that is not fatherhood, then I don't know what is. Therefore, the monster is a Frankenstein, a true son of the Baron who wanted to harness the fire of the gods. The name applies to both creator and created. And while anyone in the business will tell you it is sometimes confusing, we professionals embrace it as an idiosyncrasy of a different, less smug age. As such, I declare the argument over the doctor and monster nomenclature closed. Forever. Now, let's learn you some Frankensteins. Part 2. The 31 Karloff I have to be honest with you, this model is the rarest of the rare. Not to dash your hopes right out of the gate, but don't expect to find one of these at the local antique store. They are simply too prized to be available outside of national museums, silent auctions, and black markets. This is one of the originals. A genuine 1931 Boris Karloff chassis with a Jack Pierce custom paint and detail job. Whew. Can you sense my excitement over here? It's the Frankenstein that started it all. I mean, aside from the book, which was admittedly very popular. But this is the one that launched the careers of a thousand monster mechanics, and remains the elusive white whale for any dedicated collector. Of course, once was the day that a 31 Karloff could be found rambling across the Swiss and German countryside with great frequency. Mind you, when I reference 1931, I'm actually referring to a vague turn-of-the-century Europe, a time in which borders were nebulous, the Romani were treated like jerks by the locals and referred to as quote-unquote gypsies, and steam locomotives shared the kingdom of continental transportation with that dark queen of the dirt path, the horse-drawn cart. For each of these rickety wagons trundling along the Bavarian back roads, overflowing with loose hay and the tears of the peasantry, there is a universal monster running amok in what amounts to a greatest hits package worth of scene setting. It's an era spanning the end of the Bismarck Age, all the way up to the Great War. Each year blurs from one into the next in a fog of random notions pulled from the ether of the times. Need some electricity to bring your corpse project to life? Hey, it's kind of a time where that might be possible. Tesla was fooling around with that stuff, right? Sure, why not? Likewise, do you feel compelled to overreact in largest groups of backwoods cretins? You can find some of that here as well, for the gaslights of the big cities have yet to illuminate the lives of farmers living in the countryside. Indeed, the idea of a reanimated giant made of stitched-together body parts does not seem to fit a world after the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, unless you wanted to use it as a metaphor for Europe herself following that war to end all wars, which would actually be pretty apt. In fact, pretend you didn't hear that. I'm going to use it somewhere later. Dr. Henry Frankenstein is played by the tortured face of Colin Clive, is heir to an estate in a town named after his family. He spends his days sequestered away in the ruins of a watchtower, chopping up bodies and sewing them back together in an effort to create a race of supermen. Dr. Henry, I have to ask, who are you? Is his psychological profile that of a crazy person, a mad scientist, so to speak? Or is he simply an idle richy-rich from the right side of the tracks, with a fortune to inherit, a fiancé to avoid, and time to burn? One can't help but notice that Dad is both overbearing and teetering on the brink of incoherence, while Mom is nowhere to be found. And talk about cold feet. The massive boots Henry is hauling around his little play fort have no warm blood pulsing through them, and are therefore as chilly as relations between him and his bride-to-be, May Clark's Elizabeth. Truly, Henry's issues are naught but a ball of tangled Christmas lights brought down from the rafters. Is he truly mad, or is he just disappointed? 
Disappointed by his father's impotent pleas that he get his shit together and start wearing tasseled Shriner caps. Disappointed by the cold relationship he maintains with his presumably dead, underbearing mother. Disappointed by his fiancée wanting to spend quality time with him in a way that does not require relentless gore. And yet, it is this very gore that he surrounds himself with, as though time is of the essence. Dr. Henry, you absorbed knucklehead. Where's the fire, buddy? Those bodies are already dead, and the citizenry is hardly clamoring for a race of super beings that will undoubtedly aspire to replace them. What are you avoiding by hiding out amidst your stolen body parts? Listen, Henry, I get it. The allure of creating life and all that. Heck, when me and the missus got together, all we did was try to create life together. Three, sometimes five times a day. It's a natural thing to explore, but do it with a partner and you'll have so much more fun. Not that Dr. Henry didn't recruit some assistance. Indeed, let us not overlook the fact that the pivotal moment of the entire monster-building enterprise rests upon the lopsided shoulders of one Mr. Fritz, as played by hollow-eyed character actor Dwight Fry. No last name, just Fritz. The folklore surrounding the archetype of deformed lab assistant begins here, and Fritz is patient zero. He is a proto-torgo, a pro-torgo type, if you will, all twisted and leering, replete with upsetting tongue lol and constricted pupils. He might not actually be part goat, but he is certainly of goats and is therefore a goat man. This paradigm eventually morphs into the blanketed term Igor, though the reality is as follows. Number one, it's spelled Igor with a Y, and number two, it's a fucking disaster no matter what you call it. And it's definitely an it. Please see the scene in which Henry Frankenstein lays out his entire mad scheme for his fiance, his best friend Victor, and his old professor from med school, Dr. Waldman. Fritz putters in the background, adjusting and readjusting the jumper cables, while Frankenstein's soliloquy to his visitors plays out as follows. Quite a good scene, isn't it? One man crazy, three very sane spectators. What a disgustingly effective burn! Essentially, Dr. Henry is saying, Fritz, you're not even human in my eyes. If you weren't so deformed both spiritually and physically, I'd part you out to the other monster builders so fast. Henry's contempt is not unfounded. Not to milk the premise gland too hard, but it could also be argued that Frankenstein should probably be called Somebody Keep an Eye on Fritz. Talk about a poster child for background checks and hands-on supervision. You can't trust this guy with much of anything. For someone as dictatorial as Dr. Henry is with the pillaging of the gallows at the beginning of the story, he becomes surprisingly lax when finding alternative brains. His attention vacillates and he mood swings from micromanager to Mr. Big Picture pretty quickly. This leaves Fritz in the same position we're all familiar with, in which it's assumed by his lackluster leader that he knows which brain to grab. To be fair, the filmmakers do manage to make the healthy, normal brain in question look rather appetizing. It's all gray and glossy, sitting in preservative clear enough to see through. Meanwhile, the abnormal brain is a lumpy prison inmate, its rotting undulations emerging from a murk of criminal juices to be pressed up against the jar glass. There it peers out at the world like a sea sponge longing to escape an aquarium filled with hate gravy. Not only is each version of brain clearly labeled, but the lecturing professor even deigns it necessary to re-scrawl the words normal and abnormal across the stickers with thick magic marker before departing the theater that night. There's no possible way for Fritz to steal the wrong one. And yet. Even as a kid, I knew the score with Fritz. I recall watching him sneak into Goldstadt Medical College, greedily clasp the brain jar in his hands, and inexplicably remove the lid. I remember him crab-walking across the demonstration hall, holding the brain up to the ambient light as though admiring a fresh bowling trophy. And I recall him immediately dropping it at the slightest sound, spoiling the entire operation as soon as it has been barely accomplished. And with all the experience that nine years of life can bring, I clearly remember thinking to myself, Fritz, you are a fucking idiot.
As an adult, I still want to find fault with Fritz in this situation, mostly because he's an abomination. However, I've since realized that were I in the same situation, my logic would follow exactly the same course. Ah, shit, I dropped that good-looking brain. But there's this other brain next to it, and that's just going to have to do. Dr. Henry's a doctor. Surely he would notice if something was fucked up about this brain when plugging it into the skull socket. I wish I could say there was more than meets the eye with this willing henchman, but there's really not. When he's not bungling the brain thievery, Fritz is either being steamrolled by incessant lab visitors, or waving blazing torches at the newly reborn unholy creation, or not refilling the coffee urn in the kitchenette after pressing the last drop into his mug. This fucking guy. He's about the worst intern you could ask for, topped only by that guy Braylon at your office, who, once graduated and hired in, will be promoted over you for years to come, even though you taught that little bitch everything he knows. Now, should you chance upon a 31 Karloff and try to turn it over, you might notice a knocking sound. That's pretty common with this model, and there's a strong case to be made that the 1931 Frankenstein film should actually be called Somebody Answer the Goddamn Door. Most of the plot points you'll find in the story engine of this Frankenstein hinge on balled-up fists slamming against oaken planks, demanding the attention of either mad scientist or his willing stooge. It is a turn-of-the-century parallel of relentless text messages sent by someone who will not stop until they get a response. It's as though the very fiber of their existence is predicated on being acknowledged by you right that second. How many times can this device be used, you ask? No fewer than three, my friends. Yes, it was a golden age of film in which it was not known how to write characters in, thereby forcing the actors to show up at the movie like passing neighbors, eager to insert themselves into the lab's drama. Let us count the drop-ins. Number one. When the monster is still on the slab, covered with a crisp top sheet and about to be crammed full of life-giving electricity. The generators are being run through final tests. When the fiancé, the best friend, and the old college professor show up in an inconvenient episode of This Is Your Life. This is the mad scientist equivalent of being found in a compromising situation at a truck stop by your wife. She just happened to stop by on the way home from work to get a bottle of water and saw your car. Uh, nothing, dear. I'm not reanimating dead tissue with lightning rods and a deformed admin. Number two. When the monster is as up and functional as he can get. So up, in fact, that he's murdered the malicious Fritz, forcing a decision that he must be brought down with liberal application of heavy sedatives. It's sometimes hard to know what the monosyllabic creature of your own twisted design is telegraphing, but in this case, the swinging of his stitched arms while being locked in the basement of a watchtower, which is already mostly basement, is a clear sign of things to come, so ready your syringe. Also, steady your hand, for the pounding of your now-returned buddy's fists on the door will be echoing throughout the stony halls of your hideout in no time, demanding response. Number three. Henry's pal Victor is allowed entry to issue the warning that Baron Pops is coming, and so the sedated monster is hidden away just in time for dear old dad's arrival. Papa Frankenstein demands entry, hoping to talk some sense into his distracted son. He's embarrassing the family name, after all. Frankenstein and tampering in God's domain are the talk of the village. Henry plays exhausted and is swept from his fort back into the arms of society, leaving the 31 Karloff to escape after murdering the lingering Dr. Waldman. The 1931 Karloff Frankenstein, for its part, is a sterling model, and there is little doubt as to why it would continue to be successful over the following years. Sure, he's a little sluggish coming off the operating table. And sure, he's not what you would call street legal. No Frankenstein from any era is street legal. Let's just get that out of the way right now. But once he understands himself to be imbued with a power-amped version of life, he starts functioning like nobody's business. If there's a horror to be found here, it is appallingly existential. Within hours, the 31 Karloff has learned what takes the rest of us years to comprehend. Life is an unasked-for, brutish plane to be walked until death can be bothered to release you. No sooner is he topped off with lightning bolts than he is enchained and tortured by Fritz with the business end of a torch. 
which is exactly where the term tortured comes from. Unsure of how to halt this freak show from immolating his newly applied flesh and unskilled in the art of Pacific conflict resolution, he murders Fritz, then runs off to figure out what the fuck is going on. Meanwhile, Dr. Henry finds the remains of his lab assistant and offers little more than a shrug in response. He subsequently assumes his monster to be, I don't know, applying for jobs and living in a tenement flat, piecing together a new life for himself? It's hard to say, and Dr. Henry doesn't make it any easier to intuit, as he bravely decides to press on down the path recently avoided, that of a wealthy baron married to a hot lady who is eager to help him create life from dawn to dusk. While he prepares for his wedding, his newly born son stumbles through the alpine valleys, accidentally scaring everyone, and killing Maria, a little girl who befriends him. It's an honest series of mistakes, as well as the most tragic situation ever, but the accompanying body count does alert the villagers to a monster in their midst, and with wedding plans going on, no less. At this point, it behooves us to check on the mob. In this case, Henry makes a shrewd move, grabbing the reins of outrage and actually leading the villagers into the depths of violent mobhood, before they can even process that maybe he bears some of the blame. What better way to absolve oneself of any liability than to lead the charge against the very killing machine you have just created? And the answer returns again and again, there is no better way. So, bust the old torches out of the shed and work the hounds into a lather. There's a misunderstood, undead organism wandering around looking for compassion of any kind. May your fiery belligerence make him regret every feeling felt. Not that Dr. Henry is getting away scot-free. The veiny hand of fate promptly ushers him into the arms of his creation, who lurks in the foothills surrounding the village. They face one another in silence. Dr. Henry looks rather awkward, caught in the act of wielding a blazing torch, confirming the associated angry mob to be exactly what it looks like while the 31 Karloff cocks his arms for a strangulation if needed. And while the standoff could easily lead to the wrestling match of the century, the monster instead groans with an urgency that says, Dad, we need to talk. Hey, fathers and sons have issues. We're all aware of this. But these two? Somebody get them bi-weekly therapy sessions stat. Get them talking with hand puppets if necessary. They need to get to the core of their suppressed mutual longing. Fortunately, I guess, there is a breakthrough in the form of a very literal and burdening. The 31 Karloff carries dear old dad up to the top of a windmill. The angry mob sets the structure on fire. They didn't bring the torches for pure aesthetics. And he promptly chucks Dr. Henry like a bag of grass clippings, sending him caroming off the sails. The windmill is engulfed in flames, presumably taking the monster with it. And Henry is swept up in the arms of his bride-to-be, who still loves him for some reason. As the villagers celebrate around the pyre, the message of Frankenstein becomes abundantly clear. Try as you might to replace the old methods of processing grist with your newfangled, lightning-powered zombie, there is no replacing a fuel-efficient, windmill-based agrarian infrastructure. Part 3. The 35 Karloff Ah, now we've entered the sweet spot, the golden age of Frankensteins. Don't be fooled by the cosmetic changes made from the 31 model. This baby is a lean, mean, choking machine. Third degree burns be damned. Here, you're definitely getting the best of all worlds. He's got the look, his head appearing flatter and more pronounced with the updated post-windmill inferno hairdo. He's far more mobile, running through the countryside with the intensity of an Olympian. You know, an Olympian being chased by a torch-wielding mob. And you've also got a monster that speaks and learns quickly, chatting up a storm upon being addressed as a fellow human. It's one of the more impressive things about the 35. He manages to pull himself up by his bootstraps and get a roommate, learn how to talk, and learn how to party. He is for the briefest of moments, before that prick society enters, just a regular guy. 
Then John Carradine bursts into the cabin and things go straight to hell. But all of this is far more sympathetic and accessible than the grunting open wound that was the 31 Karloff. The 31 was so desperate, so pained, that he became as unwatchable as videos of cars stalling on train tracks. What is striking is the general washing of hands attitude from the eponymous Dr. Frankenstein in regards to his abominable creation. Rather than tinker with his prototype and maybe, I don't know, use the brilliance he recently harnessed life from the heavens to come up with a plan to knock this guy out and dump a new non-criminal brain into that skull, he instead tosses his smock aside and walks away from the whole affair. He curls his lip in unbridled... Unbridled of Frankenstein? Disgust at this poor fucker and then proceeds to ignore him like an ex-partner bumped into at a party. And so, the 35 Karloff exists as nothing but a towering, charred launchpad failure, arriving on Werner von Braun's doorstep, only to have the door slammed in his face. I'm searching for further apt metaphors capable of tackling this situation, but this is a unique set of circumstances. Henry Frankenstein is a baron. He wears tweeds and silken smoking jackets. Maybe this is a story of class warfare? But then again, Karloff's tooling around in that blazer, perfectly adequate for jumping into a business meeting over a shaker of martinis in the lobby of a local Four Seasons. Perhaps this is simply some old-fashioned middle school snobbery over outfits? Maybe Henry's a J. Crew kind of guy and the 35 Karloff falls into the gap? Which begs the question, if the garment cut falls just right on the person wearing it, does the name on the label mean anything? Also, when their paths briefly intersect while going in opposite directions on the escalators at the Somerset Mall, do they wave or do they avoid eye contact and pretend to not notice one another? Oh, damn. Elizabeth, don't look to your left, but it's my monster. Henry, are you sure? Yes, of course. I'd know that seven-foot, sunken-eyed brute anywhere. And just look at the jacket. Ugh. You should go say hello to him, darling. No, no, I can't. The last time we spoke was disastrous. I was thrown by the entire encounter. Out of a windmill. Fuck that guy. And let's not forget the issue of the monster's humanity. If you didn't know any better, you'd think the 35 Karloff was a complicated personality of dimension and depth. He survived his fire trauma by wading through the windmill sub-basement, neatly bouncing back into classic form when the bitter and incredibly nosy parents of little Maria start snooping their way through the wreckage to find his blackened bones. Lighten up, Mom and Dad. Sometimes these things just happen. It's sort of a gimme as Maria's dad slips and slides his way almost directly into the monster's arms for an easy trachea crushing, but it's just the sort of life-taking this guy needed to get back into the swing of things, by which I mean murdering more people. Now I must warn you, the 35 Karloff does come with some baggage, seen here in the form of Dr. Pretorius, Henry's former professor from medical school, played by the ardently wicked Ernest Thesiger. I know, he seems like a harmless old man who may or may not be in love with both you and the sound of his own voice, but I would warn you against allowing him into your home for the following reasons. Number one, he has petri-dished a breed of miniature people, dressed them up as archetypes, and now carries them around in glass jars displaying their weirdness with glowing pride. Number two, he's not really there to see you, he just wants to grab your monster. And number three, this guy won't shut the fuck up for love nor money. You might want to consider hiding your good scenery before the doctor comes over, as he will certainly be sinking his teeth into it. The two doctors agree to disagree about the matter of reviving dead people, and quickly embark on just such an enterprise anyway. The laboratory situation is ideal, as they simply return to the abandoned watchtower to do some light dusting, and have everything plugged in and raring to go. As this is the original sequel, and there are now two mad scientists, why not load up on twice the henchmen? Hey, it's great to keep the local creeps employed and occupied with manageable tasks, right? Sure it is. And they even bring back Dwight Fry of Fritz Infamy to play yet another lab assistant. These two guys, Carl and Ludwig, spend most of their time as kite launchers. This is a great leap forward in lightning harnessing technology. 
Hostage Minders, Dr. Henry's own bride, played here by the recast Valerie Hobson, is kidnapped to light a fire under him and get this bride finished, and Easy Prey for the 35 Karloff, who throws them around with a plum. At this point, we should discuss a very important question that any Frankenstein mechanic or hobbyist should ask. Where are the organs coming from? Seriously, folks at home, if your mechanic is not organ sourcing, get a quote from a different monster garage. You need to know who donated that heart, whose hands will be wrist-stitched for the choking, whose big, sopping brain will be making poor decisions in an equally cruel world. In this case, we see the bride's bits being repurposed from a recently passed young lady who has been entombed in a crypt larger than the house I grew up in. Henry gets Pretorius to do it, and the man with a personal collection of homemade jar people is loving it. Entirely getting off on the whole scene, he has a haunted picnic and befriends the 35 Karloff who has sequestered himself in the crypt in the hopes that the dead won't want to kill him like everyone else does. This embrace of pub culture along the sarcophagi aside, their friendship is doomed to one of exploitation immediately. Pretorius decides to use his newfound 35's well-known violent streak as leverage against Dr. Henry, who is finally, finally having second thoughts about his fucked up hobby. Sorry, Hank, but you're in deep. The cordwood stack of dead bodies you were indirectly responsible for has grown too high for you to dip out now. In for a monster, in for a bride, my friend. Now get your gloves on. Henry is barely reluctant in rejoining this crack squad of Middle Europe's best and brightest, and is soon found stirring the drippings of lady organs next to his old teacher, a familiar gleam in his eye. Okay, the heart is pumping in a glass tray filled with heart juice. Now what do we do? That's right, we check the mob. The mob affiliated with the 35 Karloff is pretty consistently pissed. In theory, the continuity of this Frankenstein picks up close to where the 31 Karloff leaves off, so those killings are still hot off the press and can account for their unquenchable bloodlust. Throw in the newer neck snaps and you're looking at fuel for whatever fires these people feel like setting. And they really manage to make a weekend out of it, hunting the 35 Karloff down and tying him up on a tall post, arms outstretched in a pose that suggests symbolism of... something. It's pretty subtle. They then chain him up in town in some crazy monster chair they just happen to have. They obviously did not get biomechanical diagnostics in the 35 Karloff, otherwise they'd know that he has the force magnitude to tear those chains right the hell out of the stone walls they've been bolted to. Say what you will about Dr. Henry's slop job on the face detailing, he calibrated that joint torque just right. Ultimately, the mob never gets their shit together enough to adequately deal with their monster crisis. It's only the additional heartbreak of being rejected by a woman who was pieced together to provide grunting company for the 35 Karloff that becomes his undoing. While doctors Henry and Pretorius gaze upon their lady creation like a couple of proud papas, she is physically repelled by her blind date. The 35 Karloff might not be the most perceptive brute to be brought back from the dead, but he definitely picks up on the lack of mixed signals once she starts screaming at the sight of him. Perhaps inherently understanding that the laws of physical attraction and interpersonal chemistry are not something that you can make happen, no matter how many impromptu laboratories you set up, the 35 Karloff responds accordingly, destroying himself, his new lady friend, and Pretorius. Dr. Henry and his own bride, Elizabeth, are left alive for some reason, probably so they can go create life and pump out heirs, who will inevitably pick up their old man's scientific pursuits after his death, allowing for some crazy sequels. All of these ingredients are in play, leading up to the climactic reveal of the bride herself, now zoetic and commanding our attention for the next three minutes. Part 4. The 35 Lanchester the 1935 Elsa Lanchester Bride of Frankenstein is inarguably the pinnacle of Dr. Henry Frankenstein's work. To start with, she does not have an abnormal criminal brain. 
Great job, guys. Glad we finally got there. Yes, with Dimwit Fritz safely dead, the allegedly intelligent doctors managed to get the right clump of cerebellum into the right skull. And what a difference a brain makes. The behavior we are able to observe is actually very natural for once. She appears disoriented, tentative, as she should be, having just been pulled back to the mortal coil without having been consulted first. Yet she deals with it all rather gracefully. On top of that, she is imbued with not only the power of lightning, but also a boss feminist spirit. Even though she was put together and animated for the explicit purpose of keeping the 35 Karloff company through the drudgery that will be their eternal existence, his advances are rebuffed immediately. His invitation to friendship, because this poor fucker just wants a friend, might cross a line when he attempts to hold her hand. But she establishes boundaries with a scream that still chills the blood. She doesn't need a man, and she certainly doesn't need a monster. You go, girl. From a purely cosmetic point of view, it is worth noting that the bride is beautiful. Henry and Pretorius have clearly taken the time to craft a singular woman of a striking visual aesthetic. Where the 31 Karloff was seemingly put together in a more hasty fashion, probably due to Henry's enthusiasm with getting his generators up and sparking, there are no flat-top brain doors here, no unsightly neck bolts. If anything, her face-neck stitches serve to enhance the strong lines of her countenance, imbuing her with the qualities of an empress with racing stripes. She is a queen of queens, and it is sad to think that she never had a chance to engage with society proper. Whether or not she, like the oddball Pretorius, belong dead, is forever up for debate. But the truth is, she saved herself a lot of hassle by being part of the 35 Karloff's atomic meltdown. And I'm not even being hyperbolic. He quite literally throws a lever that everyone knows will blow them all to atoms. Why this lever was installed in the first place is open for speculation in a different essay. Since she's only around for the last scene, it's impossible to know if the bride was aware that this would be the sincerely fucked up company that she would be keeping had she been allowed to live. Perhaps she was skilled at reading a room and decided to hell with it. It's also beside the point. She's better off without them, even if they might not be better off without her. As previously noted, Dr. Henry and Elizabeth are allowed to live for some crazy reason. The monster does have a damaged brain, after all. And go on to live the lives of barons and baronesses, making babies and taxing serfs. How he would go on to process these unparalleled events and persist with the blood of so many on his hands is a mystery. Perhaps he died thinking that his aberrant works would wreak havoc no more. But it's a funny thing about undying monsters. They never die. Part 5. The 39 Karloff. When you hit upon an instant classic like the 35 Karloff or a 35 Lanchester, it's a pretty hard come down when moving your attention to subsequent models. Like a 55 Thunderbird being followed by a 58 Edsel, there will be sporadic moments of diminishing returns. Unfortunately, the poor luck of the entire monster-building enterprise is soon galvanized with the hiring of crusty archetype and brand new monster manager, Igor. Yes, with the son of Frankenstein, we've entered the AY era after Igor. This flute-slinging pervert, as played by OG Dracula Bella Lugosi, winds up giving the title's son, Dr. Wolf, bad press from square one. Nobody can argue that he isn't at least trying to accomplish a successful monster venture, but the issue of whether he should be remains up for debate. This kicks off a downward spiral of busted dams and glacial ice caverns and incites an argument that these subsequent chapters in the Frankenstein saga should be called, Does Anybody Want to Fix My Monster? Alas, for all of his best intentions, Igor's 1939 Karloff is sluggish, monotone, uninspired. It's as though the rejection of his bride and the failed atomic suicide have left him in a sulfur-dusted fugue state, unable to leave the castle's basement sofa. We open on a meeting of the town council, caricature men wearing vests and small hats, engulfed in billows of pipe smoke. 
All of them speak of their village's namesake family with an urgency that must have been hard to maintain for the past 20-something years. The vendettas run deep in the old country, and with no local sports teams to follow, these dudes can't stop obsessing over the monster attacks of days gone by. Fortunately, this particular gathering finds them making definitive statements about how much they do not like the idea of Frankenstein's son breezing into town with all of his London flair. This feels like overkill on the Elder's part, but then you meet Wolf Frankenstein, here clad in the trappings of your average Basil Rathbone, and it becomes clear that perhaps they're onto something? When we look at how mad Dr. Wolf is, we might be deceived by the tweedy normalcy he exudes on the train. He's almost boyish with excitement as they make their way ever closer to his childhood home and inheritance. We're able to quickly piece together his backstory. He was raised mostly in England, where he taught at a university, supporting his American wife and obnoxious son, and we are just about to accept him as an exception to the wiry, single-minded lunacy of his genetic legacy when he starts talking about the Frankenstein monster and the many, many murders associated with it like it's no big deal. His eyes, initially those of an even-tempered family man of the modern world, become manic as he lectures his wife on how almost successful his father had been in creating a new breed of man-monster. Like that would have been a good thing. He was right, you know, he pleads at his bride, who zones out watching the dead trees file by. This is not the first time she's had to listen to her life partner babble about his father's deadly theoretical certitude, and she seems resigned that it will also not be the last. The rest of the fuzzy details about Dr. Wolf Frankenstein and family start coming into focus, and we're just a plot twist away from revealing a marriage battered by Wolf's affair with a young co-ed, consummated over the demonstration table in the university operating theater. A late-night fireside confession to his weeping wife then leads to this subtly repentant man clinging to the shattered remains of his life, hoping to begin anew. You know, in that town where his father inadvertently and advertently killed all those people. Wolf's preoccupation with pleasing the ghost of his dead daddy and avoiding the actual issues he faces screams midlife crisis and lights the fuse of the inevitable downfall to come. Maybe there was a chance the son of Frankenstein would wind up on a different path. Say, had he met some well-meaning golf buddies instead of the professional lurker known as Igor. But the reality is, he was only one passive-aggressive marital argument away from going full mad scientist. Continuing down our five-point checklist, we note that the Frankenstein notes are almost immediately handed over by the fusty town council to this unknown outsider Frankenstein quantity. I demand a recount of the Burgomaster votes! This guy's not fit to run a pre-war vaguely European village! Listen, fellas, for there is of course nary a woman to be seen at said council meetings, You're trying to accomplish one thing, and that's wiping out the abomination that has murdered half a generation, correct? If the man who invented this rampaging flesh pile gives you a box of papers to be passed on to his wayward, medically inclined heir, why not, I don't know, take a look at him? There are at least a dozen cold cases that need attribution. Hell, Inspector Crow, you had your goddamn arm ripped out of the socket by this thing, bro. Why not crack open the box and have a browse for clues or any kind of ownership over those wrongful deaths? But no, the sanctity of a man's mail shall forever be respected, even if it should lead the village further down the path of self-destruction. Anyway, with the infusion of Bela Lugosi's gross Igor character into the franchise comes the addition of Lionel Atwill, who plays the aforementioned one-armed crow. Atwill's becomes the steady hand guiding the ship, a counterbalance to Igor's evil, a.k.a. Bela Lugosi's evil. With his smartly mustached egghead and condescending tone, he is the physical manifestation of authority itself. Indeed, his career was built on characters all cut from similar molds. Inspectors, doctors, burgomasters, etc. Even in his most villainous roles, he's still Professor Moriarty. Here, he's a voice of reason, warning Wolf off of pursuing his father's experiments and begging him to keep a low, non-monster profile. Now, let's talk labs. Sure, years have passed. Anything is possible in the moments of a film's cutting from one shot to another. 
Space and time become confused, and perhaps there are other chapters of the original Dr. Henry Frankenstein's putterings in the realm of life and death. But I can say for certain that the lab featured here does appear to be different from the abandoned watchtower of the previous films. At the very least, the convenient backyard location is questionable. How less dramatic would all of the unwanted comings and goings and door knockings be if it was just the friends and fiancés trudging 15 feet past the hot tub to get their beloved Henry out and about? That said, assuming this is a completely different laboratory, constructed by rehabbing a Roman bath to help with the castle's appraised value, of course, the backstory given makes it clear that this lab was also destroyed, this time by that ever-present mob, rather than an insane game of man-to-monster nuclear proliferation. Always check the mob, my friends. You know how strongly I feel about this. You want to see how angry they are, if they're gathering, what kind of implements they're wielding, are there firearms, do we think the townsfolk are savvy enough to have loaded them with silver bullets, is there fire involved, and if so, how much? Is it a light-your-way type of candle situation, or is it a blazing torches taken to the manor paneling level destruction potential? That said, the 39 Karloff model comes with convenient dealership-issued mob check-ins. The mob actually checks in with you. Which explains the inquisition of Igor, who acquiesces to spending some quality time with the very men who sent him to the gallows, lo, those many glorious years ago. Props to the hunchback for not holding too many grudges, and to the village elders for accepting that, well, we technically did kill him once already, and there is not much else we can do. For all of their horrified reactions to this Frankenstein monster invading everyone's personal space, they are astonishingly lax in engaging with the goat man they sentenced to a hanging death, even though he has returned with a bone in his throat and menace in his beard. We get a bit of shop talk next, as Wolf explains the latest interpretations of his father's work. Mind you, Wolf is a doctor as well, and should you need proof of his brains, look no further than this monologue, as he delivers it, not to Igor, but rather his manservant, Benson. You just know that Wolf took one look at Igor and immediately understood that this guy would not be able to pick up what he was about to throw down regarding ultraviolet versus cosmic rays. He knows his audience, just as assuredly as he must know how to go out on a high note. There's a lot of lab-based razzle-dazzle, what with the throwing of switches and the charging of exterior electrodes, which is exactly what the people want. However, the monster barely bats a sunken eye following this attempt, and the good, evil, doctor decides, just like that, nothing more can be done. I've tried everything I know to try, by which I mean I've tried one thing, and it can't be done. Moment of crisis, a dangerous decision to be made, and he immediately gives up. Maybe he was having second thoughts. Maybe he was bored with the project. Maybe he was lying so as not to hand Igor a fully loaded monster with all of its magnificent killing power intact. Well, he is a scientist, after all. His powers of observation are soon tested as never before as the 39 Karloff takes to midnight walking tours of the castle's extensive back corridors, befriending and playing with Dr. Wolf's son, Peter. Peter is a child actor and is therefore incorrigible and unwatchable. Unfortunately, the monster can't be much of a chooser when it comes to his social group, and so uses Peter as a tool to get Wolf's attention, following the good doctor's supremely excellent shooting of Igor. Why shoot the boogery goat man, you ask? Well, it turns out that old Igor was also motivating the monster to seek revenge on his former jurors in a rash of Frankenstein-induced homicides. It's a sly move on his part, getting his easily exploited friend to end the lives of those who sent him to the noose. However, Dr. Wolf is having none of it, and is seen here in full-on damage control mode, pumping Igor's guts full of lead. I would be so happy for Wolf, as this killing must have felt great, but he's soon drawn, along with Crow, to the lab, where Peter is being held hostage by the 39 Karloff. Because you can't take your eye off these guys for a second. Crow inevitably gets his arm ripped off again in the heat of the moment, though at least it's just a prosthetic this time. 
Dr. Wolf gets to make like it's his personal temple of doom, rope swinging his way across the lab and kicking the 39 Carl off right in the fur vest and into the bubbling sulfur pit below. The triumph is enough to cure him of any latent homesickness, and we sign off with his family tossing the villagers the key to the castle and getting the hell out of there. With an implied cry of, Good luck, suckers! Their train pulls away from the station and away from the horror of the family name once and for all. Or is it? Part 6 the 42 Cheney Jr. Right from the jump, Ghost of Frankenstein throws us into a spin cycle of well-trod ideas. Expect the expected in unexpected ways. Normally, we'd be checking in on a good-natured fellow with a medical background and a pocket full of best intentions, but wait. Take that script and flip it, because we must first check in with that ever-loving mob. Ah, there they are in all of their earthy, tweed-friendly glory. Destroy the castle, they cry. Wipe the last traces of these Frankensteins from our land, they exclaim. Among the clamoring rabble, you might notice a familiar bug-eyed face. He was absent from the last installment of the saga, which begs the question, were these lines simply Dwight Fry coming to terms with his legacy in the franchise? Did they just bring him on set and roll film? There is a feeling of grievance airing from this character actor who once specialized in being thrown around stone structures by the franchise's namesake. Perhaps he was lamenting the leading man career he could never have. Regardless, this is clearly a different movie, and not the result of throwing the previous three scripts into the air and reshuffling the pages. I have to say, at this point in the overarching saga of the Frankensteins, both doctors and the various models of the monster, part of me doesn't blame the mob for being so on edge. Yes, they're violent, they're impulsive, they're prone to running off half-cocked and missing at least 75% of the pertinent information. And yet... Consider there have now been three Frankenstein rampages and all of the ingredients of a fourth assembling themselves in the foothills. Igor continues to creep around town. Yeah, those bullets didn't work, I guess. The monster remains intact, confined only by a sulfurous tomb. And how long does it take for sulfur to dry anyway? It seems like it happened as soon as the 39 Karloff broke surface after Dr. Wolf's disastrous experiments. Is the village of Frankenstein prone to little ice ages every handful of years? And the castle from which this wickedness came still stands. The people of Frankenstein seem to have every reason to believe that these are worthwhile issues, having had the cadaverous rug pulled from beneath their feet too, too many times. Granted, the logistics would suggest that time has passed. Dr. Wolf's brother, Dr. Ludwig, whom we will be meeting shortly, is clearly an older gentleman, implying some years between Dr. Wolf's death and the picking up of his story. I'm assuming a classic state of old-world primogeniture, in which Dr. Wolf is the eldest son and rightful heir to Frankenstein Castle, as we have just seen in Son of Frankenstein. He appears to be, let's say, 30, while Dr. Ludwig appears to have broken the 50-year mark by the time we run into him. And even if Dr. Ludwig was the older son and rejected his inheritance out of hand because he seems to be a sane, rational human being who lives in a functioning moral universe, this implies an interim period of around 20 years since the previous debacle with the 39 Karloff. All of which leads me to two questions. Number one, why is the mob still so antsy all these years later? Did they not think it prudent to handle all of this immediately after the catastrophe with Dr. Wolf and family? And number two, what kind of skincare regimen is Igor using? Because he looks fantastic. Seriously, two decades of moping by the sulfur pit have treated him extremely well. He's aging naturally, but a combination of strong genes and healthy diet seems to have done wonders for his preservation. Not to mention the extended sulfur pit moping. Should we all be doing this? I digress. Let's get back to that nervous mob. The mayor is pretty insouciant regarding their concerns, and being the professional politician he is, knows when to hold them and when to fold them. 
So he tosses them the bone that is Castle Frankenstein, knowing that this, along with the promises of mill jobs that are never returning, should get him reelected for another term. He senses the reality that the angry mob needs the job done now. You know, 20 years later now. Waiting until morning when they are fresh and seeing the world through less bleary eyes is simply not good enough to sate their appetites for destruction. And so, it's off with the torches and boxes of dynamite they go. Not much is accomplished other than the destruction of the castle, leading to the unearthing of our monster, the 1942 Lon Chaney Jr. Yes, making what could be considered a lateral move, Wolfman Chaney jumps from the world of hairy face appliques to one of brow-based prostheses. It's sort of a stretch for him performance-wise, far removed from the emotional landscape of self-pitying dogmen, and unfortunately it may exceed his grasp. He comes off here as a sad, dusty bulldog incapable of opening his eyes. He's not menacing so much as he's a Babe Ruth-shaped uncle taking a lot of couch naps. Fortunately for him, the monster has old Igor to lean on, his crutch with a hunch, and Igor, who is nothing if not a font of local baronic knowledge, has a plan now that this gruesome pair of damaged halfwits has been reunited. They'll go to Dr. Frankenstein's other son, Dr. Ludwig, who is played by an all-business Cedric Hardwick. Where is Igor getting this information from? Was he actually there in the previous non-Igor films, lurking in the shadows, observing the goings-on of the Frankenstein dynasty like it was all just an episode of The Real Housewives of Frankenstein Village? Is there going to be a crazy reveal in which we watch clips from the first two installments highlighting an envious young Igor who is seen mowing the lawn outside the watchtower or tending the mausoleums that are subsequently pillaged? However the dirt has been dug up, Igor somehow knows Ludwig to have all the secrets of his father. His father must have been mad. Think of the printing bill. Two sets of notes regarding one's life work and reanimating the dead will cost a pretty penny once one accounts for the holes punched in the fancy binding. Speaking of, would you believe that these notes look completely different from the wooden box of loose pages that Dr. Wolf was poring over? Well, call it movie magic if you must, but this certainly is the case. But before we get there, I ask a practical question. Where is that rad sleeveless fur tunic the Frankenstein was wearing with such elan in the last movie? Did it dissolve in the sulfur, leaving him clad in what is essentially a husky sweatshirt? The point is moot, because Igor knows that a man must be proud of his reflection before he can be proud of himself, and takes his ambulatory leverage, I mean friend, for a quick round of suit shopping. They settle on an all-black bespoke number that really highlights his long, kneeless legs and draws the eyes to the lumbering. Oh, and lumber they do, as Igor drags this stitched-together mass around the Rhineland, looking for someone to sew the soul back onto his broken pet. They roam for an indistinct amount of time, eventually making it to Dr. Ludwig Frankenstein, who is smartly fucked off to the faraway town of Viseria. Here he is taking great pains to keep his bad name in the local mob's good graces. Oh yes, you're absolutely getting two different mobs in this movie. He's not just a doctor, mind you, but a doctor of the brain, and he is hell-bent on researching and aiding those who have been clinically diagnosed as being insane in the membrane. Taking the temperature of his inherent madness, he hardly moves the needle. In fact, it's almost as though he was randomly driven by the ghost of a father who was never as good-hearted and dexterous with his own brain-picking. Hmm. At this point, we must acknowledge that it's kind of fun checking out different people's labs, which were apparently the 19th century equivalent of rec room basements or well-appointed rock garages. Here, we find Dr. Ludwig in a country manor home. It's a castle, where he has utilized a space that might, under normal circumstances, be a greenhouse or sunroom for the various body tests he administers. The tall, arching windows let natural light spill across the operating venue, giving a homey, rustic feel to the otherwise sterile proceedings. It's a lab that projects the confidence of a man who is just as comfortable holding heady bull sessions with other doctors and academics as he is hand-grooming the thoroughbreds in the stables. 
He is an elegant man, caught in an increasingly inelegant movie. Fortunately for him, he has company, and fortunately for us, they're all adults. We meet his daughter, Elsa, played by Evelyn Ankers, who commits a mortal sin by reading someone else's diary. It's her long-dead grandfather's diary, but the principle remains the same. And a Dr. Bomer, played by that scallywag Lionel Atwill. Bomer is Dr. Ludwig's co-conspirator, and seems to be living a bachelor's life on the premises. At the very least, he is comfortable keeping a satiny smoking jacket on site and is available for emergency procedures at any time of day. He is a loyal accomplice, at one point even sandbagging over the state of his employer's mental health. Dr. Frankenstein is half insane, he exclaims, frustrated. Really, Bomer? Because he's currently in his study being talked into preserving the monster's power by the ghost of his dead daddy in some stock footage. I believe that qualifies him as being fully insane. To be fair, Ludwig is sensible enough to employ Bomer as his confidant while musing over the state of the monster, wisely keeping Igor outside the laboratory, where he leers through the windows in desperate need of a hand check. Yet, strong-armed by Igor's mind games, Dr. Ludwig agrees to get to work on his father's creation, despite the all-points dragnet that is looking for him. Like a kid hiding a runaway friend, Dr. Ludwig allows the 42 Cheney and Igor to squat in his dungeons while he figures out a cure for the monster's lethargy. Every host's worst fears regarding impromptu house guests suddenly come to fruition as the police finally make their way to Frankenstein Manor. It is a testament to fairness of the local law enforcement that they did not immediately run to Dr. Ludwig's and burn it down once it was established that there was a murderous Frankenstein monster on the loose. This relief is short-lived as Ludwig is forced to endure a nightmarish police search in which almost everything that could go wrong does go wrong. The town prosecutor and bland-faced love interest for Elsa, Eric, seriously, who could even care, leads the way, smugly narrating the chateau toss, his voice dripping with sarcasm as he asks Dr. Ludwig to lead him into each secret alcove and passage as they are discovered. And by secret, I mean hidden things that are immediately found upon the most cursory inspection. Seriously, it's a matter of seconds before the trapdoor beneath the transformer is found, leading to a hidden dungeon area with a rotating stone doorway that is also immediately sussed out, leading to a lamplit antechamber apartment bearing all the signs of its recent inhabitants. The only thing that could be more obvious would be if they found a dog-eared paperback of Hunching Your Way to Monsters and Glory. Speaking of, can we straighten out Dr. Henry's intent, please? He paid an awful lot of lip service to the notion of creating a race of super people and tapping into the Promethean myth and all that jazz. But let's get a peek at that journal that Elsa is drooling over, huh? It turns out that these notes are more from the Dear Diary school rather than the world of Grey's Anatomy's annotations. He breezes past the scientific methodology at play and practically squeals with excitement in text, anticipating another body-snatching session like it's a second date at the roller rink. Equally confounding is his entry from May 20th, in which he notes, I need but one more part to prepare the monster for my final experiment. See, he was calling it a monster before that shit brain was even plunked in there. How on earth is that going to build the self-esteem of this freshly taught stitch job? Meanwhile, Igor is up to his old manipulations and convinces Dr. Bomer to plop his brain in the monster's skull rather than that of Bomer and Ludwig's former medical colleague. And here, three hours into his story, we learn of Igor's true purpose for his actions. He wants to be a leader of men who will rule the state and maybe even the whole country. Huh? Well, say what you will about him, he's ambitious. The monster, as we are always told, has the strength of ten men. Well, hey, fellas, here's an idea. Get eleven men. Or twenty. In fact, go get the entire angry mob. This is exactly why it exists. And yet, when the mob finally makes it to the party, it winds up being incredibly fickle. They give people a chance to solve the abominable human experiment conundrum using nonviolent tactics, and this is certainly a progressive way to go. However, after ten minutes pass, the time for patient, rational thinking is over. 
He's been in there long enough. We're losing valuable time. Guys, are you going to be losing a bid for a town monorail or something? You've waited two weeks for a resolution already. What's the rush? Look, the 42 Cheney is not a great model of Frankenstein. Not the worst, mind you, for that comes next. But with Karloff's retirement from the role, it's kind of fun to see the other actors in the stable get slotted into the big man's stacked shoes. It is therefore wildly appropriate that Igor should suggest they dump his maniac brain into the monster's skull, easily leading us into the next scenario, which is the 43 Lugosi. Stay tuned for that hot mess. Anyway, go figure, the monster brain swap shell game ends with less than adequate results as the monster goes blind with his Igor retrofit. With the mismatching of blood types, the Igor brain Frankenstein becomes blind, irritable, and bossy, leading to a death by house fire. The Frankenstein physically melts in the flames before the Viserian mob can really sink their teeth into the proceedings. The wind having been taken out of their sails, they look on as the monster dies anew, taking Ludwig, Bomer, and the twisted mind of Igor with him. Part 7. The 43 Lugosi Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, a classic case of the elevator pitch becoming the title of the movie. And so, I suppose we need to talk about the monster's buddy, the Wolfman. Holy cow, is this guy tortured. You thought Frankenstein's codependency was an emotional anchor? Wait until you get a load of Lawrence Talbot's rueful, never-ending wallowing. It's a vicious cycle of telling a story to people who are willing to listen, but incapable of understanding because, well... It's just fucking crazy. He then proceeds to fulfill his own prophecy by killing the very people he has just opened up to. It's a novel therapy, for sure, but one that has definitely never worked. Meanwhile, we are assaulted with close-ups of his sad dog face as he sends watery-eyed quivers out the nearest window in the general direction of the moon. And you just know that European moon is always full. Side question, for I'm a Frankenstein expert, not a Wolfman expert, what's up with Talbot's outfits? Is he a Talbot of the Talbot's Talbot's? He seems to have no issue finding double-breasted suits or dark button-ups when needed, even when he's been recently imprisoned in a mental hospital. Such is the case here, as he is brought to an asylum following an all-night wolfing rampage. He is placed in the care of the very sane and bland Dr. Frank Mannering, who is played by the very sane and bland Patrick Knowles. Mannering quickly diagnoses Talbot as a lycanthrope and offers to help cure him. Apparently this isn't good enough for Talbot, who seems incapable of helping himself in this scenario. Mannering repeatedly tells him he's trying to help, and Talbot repeatedly waves him off because he just doesn't understand. Talbot proceeds to take his self-defeating attitude on the road, escaping Dr. Bland Mannering's facility and joining forces with his old buddy Maleva, the fortune-slinging gypsy woman. Maleva, as played by the hypnotic Maria Auspinskaya, is so old and so tired, but she knows the score with Talbot and realizes he will never shut up about his woes until they are dealt with, or he is dead, or both. And so, they hitch a horse-drawn cart and proceed to Viseria in search of Dr. Ludwig, who has sadly expired by the time they reach the burnt-out ruins of his country estate. It is here that Talbot runs into the now-frozen body of the Frankenstein monster and breaks him out to help find the ever-needed Frankenstein diary. Again, I ask, is this how nature works? When we last saw the monster, he was bitching about not being able to see and melting before the eyes of the entire village. And now he's frozen, fully intact? I mean, I guess it's the Alps, but this whimsical climate phenomenon, of all things, tests the boundaries of my suspension of disbelief. Anyway, this monster, a 1943 Bella Lugosi model, is seriously useless and does not know where the notes are. This leaves Talbot to mope some more, ruining his state of existence, that kind of thing. But upon whose shoulders will the sad sack wolfman cry? 
In this instance, Talbot starts hounding, absolutely intended, Dr. Ludwig's daughter and heir to the family name, Baroness Elsa, recast here as Alona Massey. Talbot cooks up the goofiest scheme to lure her into meeting him in order to ask for the notes, exploiting the agreeable attitude of Lionel Atwill, who has been drafted to play the local mayor, and keep his traditional sane eye on things. Remember, with every dose of Lugosi, always counterbalance with a serving of Atwill. The obvious question regarding all of this remains, when is this happening? Let's say Dr. Henry fires the shot that leads to Baroness Elsa's father, Dr. Ludwig, when he's 30. Let's then assume another 30 years before the Baroness is born, and now here she is, looking to be somewhere around 30. That's 60 years between the original Frankenstein and this one, meaning that we might be in the future at this point. This movie came out in 1943, during the height of the Second World War, so perhaps the filmmakers envisioned this happening after the war had been won, implying that Allied firebombing campaigns would take the continent back to, if not the Stone Age, the age of wandering Romani and those horse-drawn carts? Sure, why not? Hell, we had electricity coursing through every dead body in the valley while the peasantry was still cooking dinner on spits and lighting their torches the old-fashioned way. Why wouldn't this be logical? Regardless of the age, she politely demurs in regard to the notes, installs Talbot at the Festival of the New Wine until he's busted by old, well-mannered Mannering himself. Mannering has breezed into town with all of his normalcy to find and help the Wolfman, and is soon placing a bid with Atwill and his mob to destroy the creature by means of dissection once and for all. Of course, no sooner is he introduced to the 43 Lugosi than he starts giving it his own five-point inspection. And you can just tell he's ready to buy. But not without the help of Frankenstein's notes. Five films in, and it becomes quite clear that Frankenstein's secret diary is the least secret thing ever written, as Elsa knows exactly where it is and hands it over for her new friends, friends good, recall, to gawk at. Meanwhile, the 43 Lugosi is proving himself to be the clumsiest Frankenstein of them all. Lugosi, adhering to the very vampire rules he helped define, refuses to leave now that he's been invited into the franchise. Having long resented Karloff for finding success with the role Lugosi had initially turned down, and with Igor completely written out of the story, Lugosi now had his chance to strap on the cinder blocks. The results are staggering, in that he staggers the entire time. Lugosi snarls and herky-jerks his way across the screen, having made the decision to go big. He comes across as a melodramatic robot in motion, walking as though Dr. Henry had forgotten to install knee joints. In keeping with the blood-type blindness that ended the previous film, he squints his way down from a mountain castle to the village wine festival, upsetting everyone with his party crashing. It all comes off as an inadvertently comic take on the classic menacing character, and it's sad to see the Frankenstein spend most of the film idling off to the side, hanging out while everyone else makes decisions about him like it's a gruesome custody battle. Okay, so the shipments of electrified, life-inducing machinery are now flowing into town via wagon train, and you've got the recently secreted monster building how-to guide to pour over. You are now imbued with the will to correct past monster-building mistake under the guise of some greater understanding of the task at hand than that of your forebears. What do we do now? That's right, we check the mob. Seems pretty quiet in town, doesn't it? A great signal for you to tune out the rest of the world and immerse yourself in some damaged tissue repair. Except, wait, did you make sure to double-check the fat barkeep with the major attitude problem? I thought not. Listen, if you're aware of vendettas, no matter how localized, they must be kept under close observation. It's rarely the mob's torches that will be your ultimate downfall, but the guy whose children were murdered by a bumbling Frankenstein of your design is definitely going to be keying the side of your carriage in the parking lot. Defying precedent, the current mob assembles, runs around the countryside in pursuit of the Lugosi, but fails to capture both Talbot and the monster. This bizarre pairing has made its way back to the ruins of Frankenstein's sanitarium chateau. Why would the mob not check the ruins first? 
It's an obvious first choice and a real strike against the state of the town's quality of mob. That said, this mob does feature the reassuring presence of Dwight Fry yet again, who spends most of his scenes manhandling Maleva. She, by the way, has been arrested and removed from the film's plot proceedings while the rest of the drama plays out. Fortunately for everyone, Mannering ends up being the least mad of all the mad scientists, saving his breakdown until the very last moment. With less than 10 minutes left in the movie, he gets caught up in all the hot plus-minus talk found in the Frankenstein notebook and has a sudden mood swing of heart about the dissection. There's no ranting and raving, no personality quirks amplified. It's just as simple as switching some cables around on the neck bolts and you're off to the races. His impromptu sparking alerts both the village mob and his new girlfriend, Elsa, who throws a random self-destruct lever by accident, freeing both the monster and the wolfman. The mob's tone shifts from alert to efficient by passively allowing the barkeep to blow up the castle's dam, despite Mayor Atwill's rich, authoritative voice requesting otherwise. The much-hyped versus scenario promised in the title is revealed to be mostly the 43 Lugosi wrestling with that wolfman and both of them being swept from the screen by the explosive flood. After a nail-biting escape, Elsa embraces Mannering, who has meandered the three inches needed to get back to the sane side of things. Presumably, the pair would go on to a long, stable life together, rarely thinking of that odd week they spent in Viseria, living with monsters. Part 8. The 44 Strange If there's anything that unites the mad doctors we've met so far, it's that they all appear to be men of leisure. Let's break this down. Number 1. They are all, to a man, men. Women don't figure prominently in these tales, outside of being an object a man leers at or marries or carries around with all the grace of a carpet installer. Number two, they are viewed by their respective communities as upstanding citizens. The lone exception here would be Wolf Frankenstein, who was shade thrown by his home village like it was populated by a bunch of Rihannas. Presumably, he was well-respected in London until he got busted fucking that hypothetical grad student, which, come on, that's clearly what happened. Number three, They each had enough ready cash to pull together a respectable laboratory in a short amount of time in order to work on their mutual Frankensteins, which is to say that one Frankenstein. Number four, they have ample free time in which to do this mucky muck, what with their inheritances and general medicine practices run by their crack staffs of hunchbacks, perverts, and girlfriends. These are doctors who can afford three to four day weekends, allowing them a nice block of time to work on their monster projects, cost be damned. It strikes me that owning a monster is not unlike the commitment of time and money needed when investing in a boat and the associated boat life. There are plenty of maintenance fees required just to keep the thing up and running, and once it is up and running, you need to pay an assistant to make sure it's moored so it doesn't float off, causing havoc for the locals. One wonders if, like recreational boats, monster having leads one to be quote-unquote monster poor. Think of the upkeep, the associated storage and transportation costs, the insurance premiums paid to protect oneself from all of the untimely deaths that will, if you're doing it right, inevitably fall on your doorstep. I understand that the prestige of having a custom Frankenstein is what got most of these guys into the trade to begin with, so I'll allow them room to be intellectually curious. Yet all of these seemingly well-balanced, rational men eventually fall prey to the idea of a high-functioning, reanimated corpse. But be most wary of a mad scientist with an axe to grind. Enter Boris Karloff's Gustav Niemann from House of Frankenstein, the Machiavellian baddie with a medical degree everyone has a right to be worried about. You'd think for all of the medical experiments he's been doing on human bodies, he'd fix that giant chip on his shoulder, right? Wrong. This guy pours ice-cold vendetta on his cereal every morning, scowling all the while. 
On the scale of scientist madness, he's almost as high as it gets. He's not only insane, he's pissed. Vasaria does the right thing for once and sends him off to Neustadt prison, implying some manner of legal system at work. Sure, they probably arrested him with one hand while wielding a torch in the other, but we must take the small victories where we find them. So, assuming there was a trial in which evidence and eyewitness testimony were provided, we can conclude that justice has been appropriately wrought. Too bad they piss it down their collective leg almost immediately. Sure, you've caught the mad scientist in the act of dumping a human brain into the skull of a dog, which, how does that work anyway? I imagine it involves a lot of pushing and putting one's weight into it like stuffing a sleeping bag back into its travel sack. And sure, you've successfully transferred the mad scientist to your high-security compound. Yet all is not well. The issue? He's housed in a cell next to Daniel, the simple-minded hunchback played by J. Carroll Nash. The crimes for which Daniel has been in prison are left to the imagination, but it's enough to know that he too has been convicted by the fuzzy Teutonic judicial system and is also being given the Hannibal Lecter treatment alongside his new neighbor. Hey, Viseria, why in Igor's name would you do this? Talk about monster meat cutes. Put him at opposite ends of the hall, dummies. At least put an empty cell between them. Alas, they do not, and the two become fast friends in what amounts to a state-ordered slumber party. The lesson offered by the courts of Central Europe is clear. Always let your murderers share space, find common ground, and conspire in the privacy offered by stone walls, right? I believe that's their official recommended methodology for convict rehabilitation. Anyway, Neiman and Daniel while away their days, lecturing and being lectured at, complete with chalk illustrations of the aforementioned dog, hooked up to cables and surrounded by some very sciencey-looking algorithms. Chalk! Who let the mad scientists have prison chalk and why weren't they fired immediately? Neiman, always keeping a watchful eyebrow out for possible escape, realizes that he's going to need another guy to help move future corpses around for his experiments and imminent revenge-taking. Seeing that Daniel has all the deliciously upsetting qualities needed for such work, he does some impromptu headhunting, pun inherent but not intended, and sweetens the deal for Daniel by offering to give his beautiful twisted brain a new body. Needless to say, the escape goes down, and we're taken on a brief road trip detour, in which Neiman and Daniel murder their way into the then-lucrative traveling sideshow business. They momentarily take ownership of Dracula's remains, but promptly lose his body-moving assets when he fails to make it back to his coffin before daybreak. With a shrug, they carry on to the village of Frankenstein, where they discover the rusty chassis of a 1944 Glen Strange model Frankenstein. That's right, the bartender from TV's Gunsmoke. What a find! The 45 Strange has great potential, being more towering than his Cheney and Lugosi counterparts. However, it's quickly determined that his tissue has been severely damaged by the ice he's been frozen in. Oh, did I not mention this? Yeah, the flood from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman became a glacial ice cavern. Somehow. Do floods spontaneously freeze and remain frozen? Well, it's the case here, so let's assume that's a thing that happens. Anyway, they also thaw themselves a bonus Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman, who leads them to the inevitable Frankenstein notebook. If we're to believe what we see, then Dr. Mannering had, at some point, rebound the notes with a fun new cover and safely stowed them away behind a Giza-sized stone in the castle's wall. How Lawrence Talbot knew this, and how Neiman knew about Mannering knowing about Talbot are all left vague. Perhaps Neiman was shown that film in prison? But the point is that Neiman now has the info he needs to get his new 44 Strange up and killing. It's not necessarily worth getting into, but I should mention that the laws of time and space have been altered in this scenario. When the traveling sideshow crew shows up looking for the monster, we're told it was in Frankenstein Village that the dam was busted, killing him, Dr. Ludwig, the Wolfman, etc. 
Obviously, we last left our heroes in Viseria, which is where the newly discovered frozen monsters are now taken, to the site of Neiman's own lab, which clouds the issue further. This is a pretty lazy mistake, but it's perhaps the result of accidental transposition. Consider, if Neiman's brother really was Frankenstein's assistant, like Neiman says, whether Fritz or Carl or Ludwig, it doesn't really matter, then he would have been assisting Dr. Henry in Frankenstein Village. This leads me to believe that the rest of the Neiman clan, including the Dr. Gustav in question, may have been located there as well. Maybe this is a quirk of the multiverse, or maybe this was written in one weekend of 1944 during that glorious age of socially accepted day drinking. Regardless, these are the charming flaws that make the Frankenstein trade so intriguing, right? The whole rowdy crew then head to Neiman's place to continue their own five-point inspection by checking out the state of the laboratory. Having been abandoned due to prison, it's looking pretty rough, but through the power of montage, they quickly get everything clean, shiny, and electrified. Mind you, no one is getting paid at this point. They're all just pitching in with the gusto of entrepreneurs looking to get their small body-swapping business up and running. The wolfman has joined Daniel in needing his brain switched out, so this becomes the carrot Neiman dangles in order to get this stuff done on the cheap. The 44 Strange is intriguing, and just how passive he is in this movie dedicated to reanimating him. Unlike his 39 Karloff counterpart, there are no late-night meanderings through the halls, no exploration of hidden passageways, no making of friends with fellow House of Frankenstein occupants. Were this the case, his options would have been limited. Neiman, Daniel, and Talbot are all one-track mining their way to brain-body swaps and have little time for chit-chat, leaving only Alanka, an abused Romani dancer who is saved by Daniel and then romantically rebuffed by Talbot, again a one-track mind, in what amounts to a real monster love affair. But as previously noted, the fellows are off barking at that perpetually full moon and exacting revenge on Neiman's enemies, so she's got plenty of free time to maybe keep a diary or polish the Tesla coil. If only the 44 Strange was more outgoing, these two could have really hit it off, going to town to browse the shops or log some cafe time. No need for Alonka to walk her to ask Neiman for the keys to the sideshow wagon, her new Frankenstein friend excels at hoisting females. Alas, these two don't cross paths and therefore cannot be the keeper of one another's secrets as she falls prey to Talbot's wolfish side while the Strange is still strapped to a table. Neiman's ultimate downfall comes from the lack of strong vision for his team. In his obsessive quest for the secrets of life and death and dog brains, he surrounded himself with a highly combustible hunchback werewolf Frankenstein dancer love rhombus. This inevitably implodes around him, just as he's about to make the 44 Strange interesting again. Silver bullets are fired, hearts are broken. The monster does eventually make it off the table and proceeds to squeeze the most out of his two minutes by throwing Daniel out the skylight in spectacular fashion. By this time, the Viserian mob has generated perhaps the quickest response time and have engaged in a brisk jog over to Neiman's. The Frankenstein grabs Daddy Neiman and makes for the backyard quicksand beds where they sink in a twisted pieta. Karloff, embraced by the very monster who made his career, the surrounding swampland set ablaze by the mob's torches. It is the Frankenstein's circle of life, all of his experience in three simple phases. Coma, table, fire. And with this tomb of sinking sand now filled, the monster is finally gone for good. Just like the next time he shows up. Part 9. The 45 Strange I have to be honest with you, they're not really burying the lead here in House of Dracula. If anything, they are enabling the lead to rest comfortably upon a layer of dirt from its homeland. Yeah, it's definitely a Dracula flick, and we get plenty of a satin caped aroma wafting across the screen while we bide our time until the Frankenstein enters. Right away, we're ushered into the labs of one Dr. Edelman, 
played here by relentless ham Onslow Stevens. And what a lab it is, apparently built over the ruins of Dr. Neiman's Casa in the bustling mad science district of Viseria, or Frankenstein Village, who can really say at this point? Distracted much? Not since Ben Hamper outlined his vigorous assembly line napping routine in Rivethead has it been so clear that workplace distractions may lead to confused priorities and low productivity. One of the more casual body stitching zones you'll ever see, the sewing area is shared with mostly test tubes. Sure, space can sometimes be at a premium, but does everything need to be on the boil nonstop, or can we save some of it for a later time? It just seems like a lot of pots to watch. Surely one of these will be left on too long and will evaporate itself down to an unwanted gastric reduction of putrid proportions. Meanwhile, 18 electricity generators grind away like welding torch pinwheels, begging the following questions. Number one, what exactly does the electric bill look like these days? And number two, what electric potion experiments are being performed? Have the elixir ready to throw on the body the instant we've pumped him full of current? Or are they independent of each other, implying other experiments? So many questions remain unanswered. Does a standard issue mad Frankenstein doctor have more than one iron in the fire? Is there room for side projects when trying to reanimate the dead? Does this doctor peel off his limb-stitching gloves and meander past the bubbling potions with a more relaxed eye, knowing that there is not as much at stake with those less legacy-fueled experiments? Does he or she tap the bulb of a volumetric flask and sigh contentedly? Ah, this one's just for me. Ah, and here we are, monster partying with the vintage Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman and a John Carradine Dracula. However, be sure to pack your bags and get your ticket punched. Next stop, Mustache City. Both of these guys are rocking stashes? Gentlemen, I beseech you, this scenario can only support so much facial hair. Please, one or the other. In all fairness, Carradine doesn't look as rough as he would some 20 years later as a proud cast member of Red Zone Cuba. There he appeared looking like an Easter Island statue that had been stung by bees, the angles of his skull having been eroded by the constant turning of time's tides. With his skinny tie, jaunty half-cape, top hat, and pencil-thin lip tickler, the Carradine of this picture looks closer to a riverboat gambler than the Prince of Unholy Darkness. Still, it's as though the universal monster genre has become a senior in high school. The original class of players was clearly ready to move on. I can imagine the baffled expressions of the crew as Cheney arrives on set first day of shooting, his mustache proud and bristling. What's the big deal? Cheney asks, pouring himself a cup of coffee at craft services. We've done like 40 of these. And how. The first half of the story is mostly the scheduled appointments of Edelman, who is soon ensnared in abetting both Count Dracula and the Wolfman, with the help of Jane Addams' Nina, the hunchbacked assistant. Rather than being as interesting as it sounds like it should be, it's revealed to be a draining slog of blood transfers and impromptu demon piano recitals. Edelman maintains a decked-out waiting room for his patients, which the audience should take as a sign that we too will be left waiting until that Frankenstein monster shows up. With Edelman himself, we're clearly meeting a man on the brink, as he almost immediately fires up the superconductors, having just peeled the monster from the earth beneath his lab. He is so close to getting the job done that I can only imagine finding a Frankenstein in the wild to have a potent, addictive quality for anyone who has been through med school. They are consistently swayed to the side of the monster's revival team with little argument. Mind you, upkeep is a bitch with any model Frankenstein, as evidenced by almost every lab he finds himself in needing some series of retrofitting in order to properly deal with what ails him. It's boutique, it's expensive, and it's why this hobby is not for everyone. No one is ever truly ready to fix up a Frankenstein. There's either a technology gap, or a complete restoration of lab equipment needed due to a previous explosion or murderous rant. Not until this moment in House of Dracula do we run into a guy who's all kitted out and ready to play God on command. 
Fortunately, through Nina's pleas that he not turn the killing machine on, he ends up thinking better of his obsessive passion and shuts the machines down, leaving the 45 strange lifeless on the slab. All of that said, there is an astonishing number of spaces in Europe that appear to be up to such monster repair challenges, which is probably why this was such a popular hobby at the time. But if we're looking for root causes of mechanical failure, perhaps we need to examine the mental preparedness of the team members putting this monster together. Every time, we watch the same scene unfold. We reach the point where the lightning is actually churning in the clouds overhead when the question is raised in parallel with the corpse on the lightning table. Here we are at zero hour, the assistant rushing up to the mad doctor in question. Uh, have you considered the consequences of your mad science, you know, from a moral point of view? And the doctor, drunk with power and high on electrostatic discharge, says, Nope, we're good to go over here. This is happening. The monster lurches back to life, is behaviorally flawed, and the mad doctor's lament begins. Oh man, what have I done? I really let this one get away from me, huh? Time and again this happens. Just once, I'd like to see the doctor give pause when the moral universe is brought up. He stares at the stitched up badlands of dead tissue laying before him. Wait, what the fuck have I been doing with my life? We are hanging out on a Friday night, lifting this table through the ceiling so our stolen body parts can get rained down and shot up with lightning? Honestly, I'm glad you brought it up. It never even occurred to me. He throws down his surgical instruments, rips off his gloves, and removes his smock. No, this is no good. We shouldn't be doing this. Enough! Shut these off. Yes, just throw that lever and shut that down, please. Thank you. The two depart from the laboratory and get a drink at the local White Hart. Dr. Frankenstein proceeds to chill out and opens a general practice in town. The end. Unfortunately, Edelman has fallen prey to overreaching, just like Nemon, but also adds in the element of Dracula blood, which has been reverse transfused into his own body, creating a Mr. Hyde-like alter ego he is periodically beholden to. Edelman's misadventures are incredibly counterproductive, as he leads a surging mob right to his own doorstep. Lionel Atwill again shows up, this time as yet another inspector, and serves his traditional purpose of approaching horrifying things in a rational manner. This fails on all fronts, and Edelman's vampiric hide persona soon steals the show, sparking up the Frankenstein just because it feels good. Unfortunately, his alter ego, for all of his wild-eyed enthusiasm, is not a great scientist, and so this model of Strange sounds the death knell of the Frankenstein line as we know it. This is hands down the most incompetent of all the Frankensteins. A dismal fucking failure. He gets off the table, stands around confused for a minute, sets a fire, and promptly dies. Coma, table, fire. Every damn time. With this last model, it was time to retire the classic giant from horror and give him a final victory lap in the realm of comedy. Part 10. The 48 Strange. As we move into the era of the original Frankenstein's swan song, we find we're in luck. Having traversed nearly two decades of Frankensteins, remaining brand loyal and forgiving the faults of their clunkier models, looking at you, 43 Lugosi, as we mature and build our families, the old-fashioned way, I mean, not the castle lightning way, we are rewarded with a model that is safe, comforting, and most importantly, easy on the pocketbook. The 48 Strange Frankenstein from Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein is the perfect starter monster. Bearing all the hallmarks of the classic but volatile 31 Karloff, the 48 Strange comes fully equipped with ill-fitting blazer, cinder block boots, easy access neck bolts, and a penchant for lying around until something interesting happens. 
The bitter irony being that the most interesting thing that could possibly happen in any scenario would be that snoozing cadaver man getting up off that goddamned operating table and trying to kill someone. Yes, everything you've come to know and love about the post-Igor monster is here, only this time you're getting some bonus shenanigans with a comedy duo. Sure, perhaps this is the inevitable conclusion of the Frankenstein make, a parody of itself. But what good ever came from the earlier models, I ask you? A pile of dead peasants, hours of too little, too late soliloquizing about man replacing God with science and all that shit? Even NASA stopped launching men to the moon at a certain point. They did it. It's done. Now let us reflect. And laugh. Because when the 48 Strange doesn't actually have his hands around your throat, he's quite charming with his stiff-legged walk, his strong but silent but stupid attitude, and his willingness to do whatever any vampire tells him to do. It's difficult to acknowledge how ineffective he's become, but the truth is it's been a rough century for our Frankenstein buddy. Any capacity for independent thought or enjoyment of the material pleasures of this existence have long since been burned and flooded and quicksanded into oblivion. The bright side is that he no longer smokes cigars, having long ago reverted back to a fire-bad mentality, but the downside is that he will never be able to adequately tell stories around the campfire with friends. For every lurch forward he makes, he takes two staggers back, trying with all his might to, uh, I don't know, figure out where and when he is. This poor son of a bitch has been sleepwalking the planet for decades, arms out and guts groaning, trying to establish a connection with any other living creature, presumably so he might ask them what the hell is going on. Let's face it, he's not been the same monster since the atomic suicide attempt of 35, and he could probably benefit from some intensive counseling. How is a Frankenstein to know what color his parachute is if he can't get his plane of emotional stability off the ground? Having become accustomed to the foggy, craggy mountains of early 1900s Europe, I imagine he was pleased to find himself being crated up and shipped to post-war Florida of all places. The sun shining, the economy booming, the nation's suntan lotion reserves being fully exploited. Likewise, had he been conscious in the slightest, a sense of relief probably would have washed over him as he found himself being unpacked by that cherubic scamp Lou Costello rather than some crusty beard creep like Igor. But while the goat man has been avoided, he'll never escape the oil slick of Bela Lugosi's Dracula, who happens to be in the crate right next door. Somewhere along the line, these two crossed paths, I have to assume it was in the evening, and it was decided that they should join forces and go off to the States together to join the rest of the retirees. But wouldn't you know it, no sooner did these two get bought and paid for by the cantankerous owner of a horror-themed tourist trap than they are followed by old dogface himself, Lawrence Talbot. Yes, the Wolfman is not only concerned with his own baggage, but also that of the actual baggage in the form of these two crates. He fears they will unleash unspeakable death or some such nonsense. Whatever, Talbot, I'm so over it. Needless to say, it just wouldn't be a classic Abbott and Costello jam without some wacky mix-ups buttressed by a healthy portion of shenanigans. And so the comedy duo is promptly entwined with the fates of the horror duo and their pet dog. All of this leads to an inexplicable haunted Floridian castle. I mean one that is not run by Disney. Here owned by a Dr. Sandra Mornay, played by Lenore Aubert. Dr. Sandra has been very busy coordinating all of these goings-on as well as brushing up on that ever-present Frankenstein notebook. How mad is she? She's agreed to spend romantic time with Costello's character, Wilbur Gray, in an effort to harvest his malleable brain for the Frankenstein. You know, because Wilbur wasn't causing enough damage wherever he went. Oh, was this not mentioned? Yeah, he's destroying almost everything he touches, way more than could ever be tactfully hidden for someone else to find days later, which is the standard operating protocol for clumsy oafs. But this path of destruction does lead to an undercover insurance agent putting the moves on him as well in order to determine liability. I have to assume that none of this is legal. 
The entire scenario is not but a slippery slope of pratfalls, price gouging, poorly filled out bills of lading, short-term hypnosis, long-term lycanthropy, and costume balls. Which sounds like a terrific time, I agree. But where is that Frankenstein? Ah, yes, there he is, back on the slab, snoozing his rancid brains out, more docile than ever. Which makes for lackluster horror, but does allow the 48 Strange to be the perfect monster option for a young family. He's a starter, Frankenstein, you see. And while he may have vats of blood on his hands, isn't America all about getting a fresh start? Why shouldn't he pivot from being a poorly treated abomination who can't help but strangle the life out of anyone he encounters to that of comedy foil? He's great at physical performance, as evidenced by his willingness to throw folks around, and his stumbly-fumbly gait is perfect for farcical secret passage horseplay. And not to be hard on Bud Abbott or anything, but his Marlboro-soaked barking at Costello wears thin after an hour and might be mitigated with the addition of a Frankenstein to the routine. You have to admit, he has presence. If only he could clunk their heads together without killing them, they'd give the Stooges a run for their money. I am loath to mention the inevitable end of the 48 Strange, which sees him tossing Dr. Sandra out a window and then burning to death at the end of a pier while Wilbur and Chick scoot off in a motorboat, but that's all there is to it. As his smoldering bulk sinks to the bottom of a Florida harbor and into an unmarked watery grave, humanity could rest assured that there might still come a day when he could emerge, sleepy and damp, gasping for the air he has never actually needed. Dried sulfur is not breathable, people. This should go without saying. Until that time, his gracelessness in this world would be missed. For the record, the order of Frankenstein scientists from least to most mad is as follows. Average Frank Mannering, Daddy Issues Laden Wolf, and Dr. Sandra, who plays loads of mind games and seems to be pursuing this at a time when everyone should know better. Then comes the Baron who dreamed up the whole concept, Dr. Henry himself. Niemann shares Dr. Henry's enthusiasm, but weaponizes the science with flimsy promises made about it to those who would kill on his behalf. Ludwig would rank below Wolf, but he sees ghosts, so that's pretty mad. Pretorius would also rank lower as a mere eccentric, but let's not forget that he used black magic to grow a line of upsetting jar people. But it's Edelman, with his personality crises, Dracula blood infusions, lycanthrope surgeries, and Frankenstein igniting a moral crossroad, topping the charts. Because that business is bananas. Alas, as the 1940s drew to a close, there was no room for monsters in the collective subconscious. Not in a world trying to get its shit together after a war that wiped out 60 million people. Even 100 Frankensteins couldn't do that much damage. The simple truth was that everyone needed a break from the horror after living through a time so clouded with death. And so ended the era of classic Frankensteins, now relegated to the status of rare collector's items and museum pieces. But it's folks like you, drawn in by the mystery, allure, and hollow-cheeked beauty of these monsters that keeps their legacy alive. I hope I've been able to inform you enough to make you feel confident out in the monster-buying world. Because a family like yours deserves only the best when it comes to your reanimated killing machine. Go forth, my friends. Go forth and plunder your attics, storage spaces, and investment properties for a Frankenstein of your own. And then, bring them to me. Perhaps I can fix them. Yes. Perhaps I can correct the mistakes that were made and maybe even give him a new brain? Then we shall see the true potential of this undying monster. The triumphant climax of Frankenstein's genius. Until then, I'll be out back, cleaning my lab. Just give a knock or three when you're ready for me.